Hello, Darksiders. I hope you're all well. Today's story is less on the gory side and more on the tongue-in-cheek. Still, it deals with crimes against a woman, so listener discretion is still advised. With that said, let's get on with the show. Today's story takes us to London, the capital city of England, the fifth most affluent city in the world according to Wealth X, and the working home of the British royal family. It was 8pm on the 20th of March 1974, when 20-year-old ex-boxer Ronald Russell, known to his friends as Ronnie, was driving back home from Kent via the Mall when he thought he had come across a road rage incident. On the opposite side of the street were two cars. One of the cars was clearly blocking the route of the other, a maroon Rolls-Royce. Ronnie could see that there was some sort of altercation. There were people on the ground, bleeding and writhing in agony, and a man was waving a gun and trying to drag a woman out of the back of the Rolls-Royce. Without a moment's hesitation, or a thought for his own safety, Ronnie shot out of his car and went running towards the scene. As I went to him, he turned his head and I hit him on the back part of the head here. And he just turned and fired at me. This is Darkseid, and I am your host, Suze. So what happened that night? Why had a gunman gone on a rampage of a car? And who was the female victim inside the car? Hmm. Let's find out. Shots have been fired at Princess Anne and Captain Phillips. They escaped, but four people were hit, one seriously. So we've just heard the evening news headlines. It was Princess Anne, Queen Elizabeth's only daughter, and her husband, Captain Mark Phillips, that were in the car that night of the fateful attack. But how could such an awful event befall a royal, right in the heart of London? Where were the police, the armed escorts? Well, we need to look at what life was like back in 1970s London. In the UK, police officers, or bobbies as they are colloquially known, don't carry guns, and gun laws are very strict in the UK. Today, only three UK forces routinely arm officers, the Ministry of Defence Police, the Civil Nuclear Constabulary, who guard nuclear facilities, and the Police Service of Northern Ireland. Back in 1974, only one branch of London's Metropolitan Police carried guns, those that were assigned to protect the royal family. On the night of the attack, SO14 had only assigned one man to protect the princess. SO14 is Scotland Yard's special operations branch charged with royalty protection. This may seem an awfully low number given today's accompanying armed entourage for any royal in the succession line to the throne. However, back in 1974, it was standard protocol to have just one bodyguard. Even the Queen only had one minder to accompany her on unofficial trips to and from the palace. Why, I hear you ask. Well, 
because no one ever thought anyone would go after the royals. The last attack on a royal had happened in 1936, when Jerome Banningham aimed a loaded revolver at King Edward VIII. No shots were fired, but Banningham served two years hard labour for his action. Back in 1936, the monarchy was at the height of a constitutional crisis after King Edward proposed to Wallace Simpson, an American divorcee. The country and the royal family rejected the marriage and Wallace Simpson, and it is believed this dislike for Wallace and the potential marriage to the monarch is what motivated Banningham. There was civil unrest in the country at the proposed marriage. The couple were booed when they were seen out together. And so, the country and the royal family would not permit Edward to be both king and to be married to an American divorcee. He had to choose between them. And he chose his heart and thus abdicated the throne. Hmm. I'm so glad we've moved on as a country since then. But by comparison, in 1974, the royals were more popular than ever and there was constitutional peace. So why, then, would anyone want to go after the royal family at a time of such rest? And why go after Princess Anne? She was fourth in line to the throne. Surely the three in the succession line before her, Prince Edward, Prince Andrew, and the Prince of Wales and heir apparent, Prince Charles, would have been much more lucrative targets. Well, it would be three decades before the country would finally learn the answer to these questions. However, at the time of the incident, Princess Anne was considered the celebrity royal of her day, the it girl, if you will, much in the same way that Kate Middleton and Princess Diana were in their respective eras. The previous November, the 23-year-old princess had married Mark Phillips, a captain in the British Army. Their nuptials attracted 2,000 guests and the New York Times said the televised audience of 500 million was the most ever for a wedding up to that point. The two had met through equestrian circles. The talented horseman had won a team gold medal at the 1972 Munich Olympics. Anne herself was known for her equestrian talents, having won a gold medal herself in 1971 at the European Eventing Championships. Both Anne and Mark went on to compete in the 1976 Olympics, making Anne the first royal ever to compete in the Olympic Games. And so, because of her commitment to the equestrian sport and her medals, the BBC named Anne its Sports Personality of the Year in 1971. So Anne, at the time, really was the nation's sweetheart and the it girl of the royals. On that night, in 1974, Princess Anne and her husband of four months were heading towards Buckingham Palace after attending a charity film screening. Anne's lady-in-waiting sat across from the couple in the back of the maroon Rolls-Royce, marked with the royal insignia. And in the passenger seat rode her one and only bodyguard for the evening, Inspector James Wallace Beaton, whom was carrying the standard-issue gun of SO-14 at the time, a Walther PPK. Now, 
if you don't know what this gun looks like. Just think of the type of gun that James Bond carries. And... Bingo. As the chauffeur drove down the Mall, a road that runs between London's Trafalgar Square and Buckingham Palace, a white Ford Escort overtook and forced the royal car to stop. Literally just 200 yards away from the palace. A bearded man with light red hair exited the car and holding two handguns charged towards the rear of the limo. Inspector Beaton assumed that the man was a disgruntled driver and stepped out to meet him. From six feet away, the assailant shot the officer in his right shoulder. Ian Ball, aged 26, from London, was behind the attack. He had one intention that night, to kidnap Princess Anne, Queen Elizabeth's only daughter, and hold her ransom for three million pounds, and no one was going to get in his way. There would be seven men in total who tried to stop Ian Ball's attack. Ronnie Russell, two chauffeurs, a tabloid journalist, two policemen, and Inspector Beaton. Four of the men would be shot in the valiant attempt to save the princess. But it was Ronnie Russell's vigilantism and strong-armed punch that brought the assault to a halt. Although Borg could not have known the route that the limousine would take that night, the palace had publicised Princess Anne's appearance at the event, potentially making it easy for someone to follow the insignia Rolls-Royce as it escorted her from the theatre that evening. Despite having taken a bullet to the shoulder, Beaton withdrew his Walther BPK and tried to shoot Ball. But his wounded shoulder prevented him from taking correct aim. He fired once, but missed Ball. He tried to fire his gun again, but unfortunately, it jammed. Ball turned to the rear door behind the driver's seat and started shaking it. Anne was on the other side. Open or I'll shoot! As the princess and Captain Phillips did their best to hold the door shut, Princess Anne's lady-in-waiting crawled out at the back door on the passenger side of the limo and ran for help. Beaton, despite the wound to his arm, took the opportunity to jump back into the limo. I went into the car and then Ian Ball turned back. He fired and the bullet went into my hand. So I said to uh, Mark Phillips, release the door and I'll kick it because my feet were beside it. And then I was under the assumption it would hit Ian Ball. And when I kicked the door open, he was just standing there with his gun. He had two guns, one in each hand. I can remember seeing, you know, the gun in the barrel pointing towards me. He shot me again in the abdomen. Um, I was pretty dazed, so I got out of the car. But by then, you know, I was, I was really out of it. Um, and luckily, of course, other people got involved by then. So the princess's bodyguard had been shot four times in a valiant attempt to protect her. But he could not stop the assailant, and he was depleted from his injuries. Realising that Beaton could no longer protect the princess, the chauffeur, Alexander Collander, stepped out of the car to confront the gunman. Ball shot him in the chest, and Collander fell back into the car. Pulling the back door open... Ball grabbed Anne's forearm as her husband held valiantly onto her waist. Ball kept demanding that she got out of the car, but Anne, calmly and dogmatically, refused. 
as the two men struggled over Anne, her dress ripped, splitting down the back. Instead of panicking, she had what she later recalled as a very irritating conversation with her potential kidnapper. Here is Anne, in her own words, describing her conversation with the assailant. And then he opened the door, and we had a sort of discussion. <laughs> um, well, he said I had to go with him. I said I didn't, didn't think I wanted to go. Thank you very much. I, I was scrupulously polite. Now, this discussion was interspersed with occasional bursts of activity from elsewhere. And then we went back to having this rather tedious discussion about not going anywhere. He got the door back open, but in the process of getting the door back open, the back of my dress split from top to bottom, and all the sh shoulders went out of it. And that was his most dangerous moment. I, I lost my rag at that stage. I was wonderful. And then he grabbed my arm um, and pulled. Unfortunately, well, I don't know whether it was me holding on to him or him holding on to me, but anyway, we, we maintained the status quo for a bit. Um, I wasn't going anywhere, put it that way. Please forgive the laughter in the background of the clip. The princess was giving an interview with Michael Parkinson, some years after the attack, when she could regale the event with a modicum of humour that is so indicative of how Anne carries herself. But, back to the attack. By now, other police officers had arrived at the scene. However, constables hesitated to advance on an armed man, so near to a princess. Anne and Mark could see them, and could see they weren't advancing on Paul. The rescue seemed so near, but yet so far. Constable Michael Hills, 22, was the first police presence on the scene. He had been patrolling nearby when he heard the sounds of a struggle. He assumed the conflict was over a car accident, and so he approached Paul, not realising the magnitude of the situation. He touched Ball on his shoulder, and the gunman turned around and shot Hills in the stomach. Before he collapsed, Hills maintained enough strength to radio his station. This was the first alert that went out to the police. Another motorist, a chauffeur named Glenmore Martin, had noticed the altercation and parked his car in front of the white Ford to keep Ball from escaping. He also tried to distract Ball, but when the gunman aimed at him, Martin turned to help Officer Hills on the side of the road. Meanwhile, Daily Mail journalist John Brian McConnell came onto the scene. He had been passing by and had also seen the altercation. Recognising the insignia on the limo, he knew a member of the royal family was in danger. He tried to coax the gunman to put the weapon down, but instead McConnell was shot and he fell to the ground beside the constable. After McConnell fell, Ball turned back to his struggle for Princess Anne. But it was at this point that Ronnie Russell, a valiant hero from the top of the story, was running to the scene. Spotting the assailant trying to pull Anne from the car, Ronnie rounded on him, momentarily distracting Ball. Anne seized this brief opportunity and reached for the door handle on the opposite side of the back seat. She opened it and pushed her body backwards out of the car. But by now, Ball had recomposed himself, and he ran around to Anne's side of the car. She deftly jumped back into the car and slammed the door shut. Ronnie ran around to where Ball was pulling frantically on the door handle on Anne's side of the car. 
and as we heard in his earlier audio clip, the former boxer delivered a well-timed and well-deserved punch to Ball's head. This blow dazed Ball and he staggered back, and now the police, seizing their moment, started to close in, and Ball began to get nervous. So Anne, as cool as a cucumber, as she had been throughout the entire assault, said through the window, Come on, now's your chance, and he then legged it off towards the park. And Ball did just that. He hightailed it away from the scene and through St James's Park. Peter Edmonds, a temporary detective constable, saw Ball fleeing the scene and gave chase after him. He threw his coat over Ball's head, tackled him to the ground, cuffed him and arrested him. The ordeal was over. Authorities found over £300 in £10 notes on his person. You've probably noticed by now that I have not provided much information on Ian Ball other than his age and birthplace, and what he looked like. Well, there's a reason for that. The then Home Secretary, Roy Jenkins, ordered an investigation into the incident, but advised that the details were to remain confidential. The story hit the headlines the next day, but because of Jenkins' confidentiality order, the only information released to the general public were exactly what I've stated to you. Ball's age, where he came from, and what he looked like. There was a hint that there may be a background of mental health issues, but nothing was very specific. The country collectively scratched their heads, trying to work out how this potentially mentally ill man could have masterminded a well-funded, well-thought-out kidnapping attempt on his own. In fact, the population and journalists alike went into overdrive with theories. Princess Anne was praised in the press and by her heroes on that night for her calm and cool demeanour throughout the whole ordeal. And in keeping with this level-headed attitude, just the day after the attack, the Princess and Captain Phillips returned to their normal routines at their home on the grounds of Sandhurst. He instructed cadets on the rifle range and she tended to her horses. Days after the kidnapping attempt, a group calling themselves the Marxist-Leninist Activist Revolutionary Movement <laughs> that was a mouthful, sent a letter claiming responsibility to the Times of London. But Scotland Yard dismissed any connection between that group and Ball. Roy Jenkins told the papers that he had ordered an increase in royal protection. However, Buckingham Palace released a statement saying that the royal family had no intention of living in a bulletproof cage. Chief among them was Princess Anne, who valued her privacy even after recognising how fortunate she was in escaping unscathed. However, they did concede to having two police escorts instead of one. Ian Ball appeared in court on April 4th, 1974, charged with attempted murder wounding with intent to cause grievous bodily harm and attempting to kidnap Anne. He pleaded guilty to all charges. His lawyer spoke about his history of mental illness, but Ball also gave a statement on what motivated his crime, to draw attention to the lack of facilities for treating mental illness under the National Health Service. Ball was sentenced to a life term in a mental health facility. 
he has spent at least part of his internment at Broadmoor, the UK's highest security psychiatric prison, notorious for housing some of the UK's most prolific criminals, such as Ronnie Cray, one half of the Cray Twins, Peter Sutcliffe, also known as the Yorkshire Ripper, and Charles Bronson, dubbed the UK's most violent prisoner. Ball remains there to this day under the Mental Health Act. Even after Ian Ball's sentencing, the public would know little else about him, except for, as I've already stated, his birth date, where he's from, and what he looks like. In fact, it would be three decades before the public would learn of Ball's identity, his background, the lead-up to the attack, and why he even chose Princess Anne. This information was released only because the British National Archives upheld their 30-year rule, which requires the release of cabinet papers 30 years after their filing. So, after three decades, people finally learned all about Ball. And I can tell you, it is a bizarre ride where the facts are stranger than the fiction. At the time of the attack, he was an unemployed labourer. He had a history of psychotic disturbances and had been seen many times at the St Mary Abbott Hospital in London between 1967 and 1972. He was diagnosed as schizophrenic and given tranquilizing drugs. He dropped out of school at 16, worked odd jobs and lived in a concrete tower block. And, according to experts, Ball heard voices in his head telling him what to do. Ball, who was classified as neither being anti-royal nor politically motivated, spent two years planning the kidnap in minute detail. He had been to Spain to buy two pistols. He had rented a house in Fleet, Hampshire, not far from Sandhurst, where Princess Anne was living with Captain Phillips. Using the name John Williams, Ball had rented a car in which police would find two pairs of handcuffs, Valium tranquilizers and a ransom letter addressed to the Queen. He had typed this rambling note, which criticised the royal family and demanded a three million pound ransom to be delivered in five pound notes. How bizarre. That is twenty million in today's standards. He intended to give the money to the National Health Service to be used to improve the care and treatment of psychiatric patients. Ball asked the Queen in his ransom note to have the money stored in 20 unlocked suitcases and put on a plane destined for Switzerland. Queen Elizabeth herself needed to appear on the plane to confirm the authenticity of her signatures on the needed paperwork. (laughs) Unbelievable. He was found with the ransom note on him at the time of his arrest. He'd attempted to destroy his ball identity, burning his passport, and other personal papers shortly before he carried out his kidnap plan. Not quite sure how you can get on a plane and go to another country without a passport. But okay, moving on. He had bought food, nightgowns and a toothbrush for Anne, as well as three pairs of handcuffs. He intended to fly from London with Princess Anne to Zurich in Switzerland. From there, he said she'd be released and returned safely home, once he received the ransom money. For the final stage of his plan, Ball shadowed Anne for five days, merging into the crowd as he studied her routine and the people around her. To find out where Anne was going to be at specific times, all Ball had to do 
was called the Palace Press Office, which told him the princess would be attending a charity film screening that night. In 1983, Ball actually had the audacity to pen a letter to a member of Parliament in which he claimed that the attempted kidnapping was a hoax and that he had been framed. <laughs> but back to 1974, September to be precise, all the men involved in saving the princess that night were invited to Buckingham Palace. At Buckingham Palace, an investiture for the heroes of the Mall, followed by an informal reception in the white drawing room with the Queen, Princess Anne and Captain Mark Phillips. The meeting of the Queen, that was so special because, you know, suddenly I'm, I'm going to do something that probably wasn't going to come into my normal life, was it? When she presented me with a medal, uh, as she put the medal on me, she went, this medal thanks you as the Queen, but I want to thank you as Anne's mother. Queen Elizabeth awarded the George Cross, Britain's highest civilian award for courage, to Inspector Beaton, the princess's bodyguard whom received four shots that night. She presented the George Medal, the second highest civilian honour for bravery, to Police Constable Hills, who was the first police officer shot on the night, and to Ronnie Russell, our valiant boxer who punched ball. The Queen's Gallantry Medals, which is the third highest honour, to Police Constable Edmonds, the one that chased ball through St James's Park, and to John McConnell, the journalist who tried to coax the gun from ball, but was shot, and to Alexander Collander, the chauffeur who tried to confront Ball, but was also shot. Glenmore Martin, the motorist that parked his car in front of Ball's to prevent him from escaping, received the Queen's commendation for brave conduct. Having shown so much bravery, Inspector Beaton continued to work for Anne for another five years. He subsequently worked for the Queen, too. As previously mentioned, the Home Secretary, Roy Jenkins, had ordered an increase in royal protection following the incident, but this had been refused by the royals. However, in 1982, both the royals and the Metropolitan Police were going to come to regret that decision. Just ten years after the botched kidnapping, Scotland Yard came under criticism from the press for failing once again to protect the royal family this time, an unemployed man scaled the palace walls and snuck into Queen Elizabeth's bedroom. Apparently, the two talked for ten minutes before the Queen could summon help. And so, as a result of these two events, both Ball and the bedroom invader, Scotland Yard reorganised the royalty protection branch and placed one of the heroes of that night of the attempted kidnapping, James Beaton, as its superintendent. In subsequent years, significant changes were further implemented to protect the royals. When the attempted kidnap happened back in 1974, there was no backup vehicle, no radio communication within the vehicle to call for help. Training on how to protect a royal was non-existent. And the weapon that they were issued, the Walther PPK, the James Bond gun, well, it was notorious for malfunctioning. Hmm. James Bond never seems to have a problem with it, though. But then again, back then, nobody ever contemplated that anyone would want to go after the royals. In the aftermath 
of Ball's foiled kidnapping and the Queen's unwelcome bedroom visitor. Much more stringent protection procedures were put in place. Royal cars now had escorts. Specialist training was given to all members of the police assigned to the royals. And those pesky, jamming Walther PPKs were immediately replaced. This story, you would think, would be coming to an end at this point. But something happened in 2020 that brought this event back into the public focus. Remember Ronnie Russell, a valiant hero at the top of the story, that laid the punch that stopped the attack on Princess Anne? Well, he entered the news in February 2020, and not for the best of reasons. Ronnie, now 72, has been suffering from a suite of health issues for the past few years. Even though we are extremely fortunate to have free healthcare in the UK, thank you NHS, we love you, Ronnie has had to seek out private treatment and incurred other costs associated with his health. As a result, he has been left financially insecure and worried about his future, and especially how to pay for his funeral. In a heart-wrenching decision, Ronnie made the choice to sell his beloved George Medal bestowed on him by the Queen. He has kept the medal all these years as a showpiece, but now, in his dotage, needs must. The story caught the attention of the media, such a brave, heroic man having to sell his most prized possession, and it really grabbed at the heartstrings of a nation. I'm obviously saddened that I've reached the stage in my life where I need to sell the medal. The end is, isn't always that far away. I want to know that I've done enough to bury myself. The medal went on sale at Dick's Noonan Webb and had an expected sale price of £20,000, or roughly about $25,000. However, whether it was the media attention or the fact that his story of heroism and hard times touched an entire country. The medal ended up selling for a whopping £50,000, which is approximately $65,000. With this money, Ronnie is guaranteed to live out his days well. And I don't know about you, but I wish him many years of better health and security. He is a true gent. So there you have it the story of the attempted kidnapping of Princess Anne and her seven valiant heroes that came to her rescue. All the men that night are worthy of the medals they received, especially Superintendent Beaton, whom received the brunt of the attack, sustaining four bullets. But Ronnie particularly stood out to me. Unlike the other defenders of the princess that night, Ronnie didn't know that there was royalty in the car. As a member of the general public, he dove headfirst into a very lethal situation, simply to help a woman. He thought nothing of his personal safety as he jumped over the bodies of the other fallen heroes lying in pools of blood to try stop the man from attacking the woman. That to me is the epitome of bravery, because I don't know about you, but if I came upon such a scene of carnage and violence, that I'd have the courage to wade into the fray. Would you? I hope you enjoyed today's story. It's been a little less macabre than last week's. I thought we could all do with something a little less dark, 
especially in the light of all the doom and gloom that 2020 has handed to us. But don't worry, this is only a mild reprieve, for Darkseid will be back next week with a story that I promise you will make your stomach churn and curl your toes. It did me. I'd like to end each episode with my thanks going forward. Darkseid is just two episodes in, and already I'm getting a lot of lovely feedback from you all. Thank you so much. And if you like this podcast, please can I ask you to rate and review it at Apple iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts? It really does go such a long way to helping Darkseid be shared by the platforms in order to reach more lovely ears. Besides, you would be making one little podcaster who has finally been released from tier two hell and back into some sort of normality. Very happy. Go on, I know you want to. And speaking of thanks and sharing, my little podcast has been reaching the ears of some new countries, so I'd like to give my thanks to them. Now I have to forewarn you, I speak no other language than English so I'm quite sure I'm going to be asking to fry your cat in Filipino rather than thanking listeners from their respective countries. But I'll give it a try. Okay, here we go. This week, I'd like to thank Sri Lanka, Ayubovan Saha Bahoma Istuti, and the Cayman Islands. Hello and thank you. Okay, I couldn't really butcher the Cayman Islands, could I? But I'm quite sure I did just fry a cat in Sinhala. My deepest apologies, but I'm sure you can tell that I'm trying. Also, why don't you come join me on Facebook? Just look up Darkside. Love to have you along for the ride. Or, if you'd like to reach out and have a chat or just PM your feedback, you can contact me at info at darksidepodcast.co.uk So with that said, please don't forget to stay safe, stay alert. Suze, over and out. Over and out.